Hello and welcome to episode 116 of The Dive Down, a Magic the Gathering podcast focused on the latest decks, trends, and strategies for the casual spike. My name is Stanislav here in Chicago, and with me on the line from Denver, Colorado, it's the one and only Shane Beeps. Denver weather report is coming in right now. I feel it happening. Yeah. Um, hopefully I make it through this episode because there's a lot, of, there's a lot of heavy snow yeah. on my power line. Yeah, sure. my, internet, my, my internet line is, is encased in snow. I looked at the internet line. Shane warned us today that he might not be able to record because the snow's too heavy. I do have, well, I got I have a UPS. So if I lose power, my lights will turn off and I'll have the countdown will begin to while I run out of battery power. Do you also have like those little brown shorts? I got the brown. I only have the brown socks. I I like that he said that. Like we know what a UPS <laughs> is. I have no idea what he's talking about. Stan, uh, ultimate power supply. UPS ultimate NFT, power supply. NFT. I don't know. Ulterior power supply. We're putting NFTs in the dive down Patreon tiers. I hope everybody's ready for that. Oh man, that's a really good idea. Who wants actually? some tokened <laughs> JPEGs of us staring at each other? I guess. <laughs> Also with us, the godfather of NFTs, it's Dave Harbarger. That's right. I got a lot of good ideas about how to monetize this thing. I hope you guys have some time afterwards for us to talk about it. Very funky Tarmogoyfs. (laughs) Non-funky? Very fungible Tarmogoyfs. (laughs) On today's episode, we kick off the show with a look at Time Spiral Revisited and explore some (laughs) of the cards or decks that might be on sale with the latest reprint release. Dan, is it Revisited or Remastered? I have to ask. Definitely not revisited. It's Redux. (laughs) Then we're diving into Historic Anthology 4. Is the latest injection of cards into Arena's non-rotating format casting a new shadow on the metagame? Or did the platform consume our hard-earned gold coin with nothing to show for it? And or gems. All this and more after this week's housekeeping. Shout out to the newest patrons to join the Dive Down Nation, Victoria G., Also, big thanks to Stefan H. for going up a tier. Thank you both very much. And shout out to LaxBro133, a new reviewer from Canada. It's a boot time. Man, they they got the internet stuff there? They got the dive down in Canada? Awesome. We don't don't let relaxed people in here, so I don't don't know about this LaxBro. We like aggro bros. They said said that they've been listening since episode one, so shout out to LaxBro. Uh, thank you for eventually making that <laughs> Apple podcast account. I'll never forget the lesson we learned in episode one that sometimes putting cards in your graveyard can be good. <laughs> I still think I still think you didn't believe it for a while. I'm not sure I'm convinced to this day. You know, the more things change, the more they stay the same. Stan, you mentioned the Patreon. If you want to uh, support us and what we're doing here at the Dive Down, head on over to Patreon. That's patron with an E in there somewhere. Dot com slash the Dive Down. Uh, we have various tiers of support at which you can subscribe. The lowest tier, a dollar an episode, dollar a week. You too can join the Dive Down Nation, our awesome community of supporters and friends in the digital realm and even the real world realm. Going up from there gets you all sorts of cool stuff. We recently sent out a bunch of swag out to different patrons. Stan got those play mats out. Those are super sick. Um, I think... I think I still have one. I haven't played Magic and Paper in a year, so I'm hoping it's still there in that drawer. Uh, But yeah, 
Patreon.com slash the dive down. Yeah, I want to pitch my concept of NFPs here, non-fungible playmats. Is everybody ready? Ready for that? We're gonna put some kind of code, some kind of barcode in into the playmats directly. Can you take care of that, Stan? Sure. It's a QR code though. Oh. And it's just gonna be a link to MTG Bands when. <laughs> Perfect. Do you remember that website that was just called people using QR codes.com? No. And you went to it and it just said <laughs> no. on it, it just said no entries yet. <laughs> For like three years. <laughs> yes. I guess Venmo got the last laugh there, though, because they're, they're, they're handy there. Anyway, if you want to support us while playing Magic Online, you can check out Manatraders.com. Manatraders.com is where we rent our Magic Online cards for playing modern, mostly, and sometimes Pioneer from. And if you enter code the dive down when you sign up for the first time, you will get 15% off your first three months of Excellent rental service, manatraders.com. You know how we often use this section to confess about cards that we've held onto for too long? Mm-hmm. I still have ephemerate. No. <laughs> That's got force and negations in it. I know. They're not asking for them back. Into fairies. Send it back. Ephemerate. Ephemerate is my favorite Sonic Youth single. Ephemerate. <laughs> ephemerate. And finally, for all you MTG Arena players out there, check out untapped.thedivedown.com to download the Untapped Arena companion software. Track your performance, and it sends a little kickback to our show without you spending any money. A little bit of a weird episode this week, right? We got two topics that we're looking at today. One that's sort of newsish, and the other one that is play-based, but... um. Not a lot going on as far as meta goes right now, so we're just kind of going to take a pause on that for this week. Your regular scheduled event style breakdowns will be back shortly, but this week we're going to talk about, you know, we we did an episode, episode 80-something, I believe, called A Time, uh, called A Double Masters Buyer's Guide, and, you know, we wanted to do a similar thing for Time Spiral Remastered. It's like the worst kind of buyer's guide, though, right? Because it's basically going to be like, hey... Here's a bunch of cards you should pay attention to. They actually cost more than the cards you already have, but they look cooler if you like old borders. Oh, that's the twist, isn't it? What a twist. Yeah, I mean, this stuff's sick, right? Like, uh, Double Masters? Was it Double Masters or Ultimate Masters? Or both? It was Double. Yeah, and it really feels like only yesterday that Double Masters came out and put Tron on sale, as well as some other cards. Um, Who cares about those? Yeah. That was nearly 30 episodes ago, by the way, or more than 30 episodes ago. So it was six months. So maybe maybe that's the new cadence we get to get used to. Every six months, there's a reprint set, give or take. I hope not, but maybe. <laughs> you know, I think it's nice to, to mention Double Masters very briefly up here, because though many of us have moved on from that price impact that the set provided, some cards still have a new floor thanks to the reprints from Double Masters especially things like Noble Hierarch, Jace the Mind Sculptor. Those two cards have basically been half the price since before the Double Master reprint. Hmm, I'm so glad I paid full price for those two years ago. Great. I'm Thanks. glad you did too. Yeah. Well, I mean, there, there is a combination of, of play quantity of these cards, right? Like it's, it's the, the natural ebb and flow of the modern metagame combined with continued reprints. It just goes to show you never really know what to expect to pay for a magic card, unless it's more than you probably should. Darn tootin'. You know, at the same time, there were other cards reprinted in that set that did not have a, a price decline. Sword of Feast and Famine, Karn Liberated. They may have gone on a brief sale afterwards, but they're kind of packed where they were before that. Interesting. That's kind of the important thing, right? Is what we want to identify here, where your windows are, and 
it's not really we're really not going to say how long they're going to be there for because we one we don't know but two we have seen those windows of price dips especially i think right now as people start buying maybe back into paper in preparation for in real life play being a thing again i think you can expect some of these discounts to be fairly short-lived if people are buying into decks that they're interested in or cards that they're interested in uh in time spiral remastered for sure so we'll uh bring your attention to some cards that are on sale you know immediately after the set is reprinted i guess we're also going to talk about some cards that i guess cost more now <laughs> surprise that's an unusual twist yeah um, and let's start with the general reprints because, you know, it, for those who aren't aware, Time Spiral has two sets of cards within the product, right? You have your yeah, left Twix and right Twix. Exactly. You have your modern border reprints of cards from the actual Time Spiral block. And then also it has this time shifted alternative version of cards that have never been printed in the old original classic magic border that are now being kind of shoehorned into this set to be reprinted in that old border, almost like a, a masterpiece, but not foil. Or some, sometimes foil. Sometimes foil, but also there's one in every pack is the meaningful difference there. But we'll, we'll talk about the old border ones later. I think we should talk about what's cool with the normal reprints. Yeah. What's interesting about Time Spiral, I think, broadly, is that there's a few cards from this block that have never been reprinted. And there's a f then there's also a few that have like maybe one reprint or maybe something like a secret lair or a judge for like a judge car or something like that. So there are some opportunities for you to get in on some of the weird cards from this set that have slowly crept up over time because they've only been printed once. And, and one of those is Gemstone Caverns. Currently, about like 37 bucks shipped, formerly about 50. This is one of those cards, like I said, hasn't had a print reprinting since the original Time Spiral. This is a cornerstone of many a busted deck. Um, I actually bought one of these as a present for our former co-host Zach at less than 20 bucks. I wish I had purchased many more. Um, yeah, they've been all over the place at different points in time. Like I've seen them at events, I think occasionally at above $60 a piece i think it really like shane said it depends on if there is a super unfair deck in the meta that wants this card to try to get an extra land into play yeah i'm personally probably not going to be buying any of these but i also never want to play decks that really feature this land or i mean i guess i did enjoy red prison but it's not the kind of thing that i'm, I'm gonna buy into whole hog this is an entirely unique block of text on a card though um Note that this card was also upshifted to Mythic, so that will have a different sort of price floor or I think price dynamic, that dynamicism, that's a word that I just made up. Uh, I think it's gonna probably stick around this price. I think there's gonna be less supply to push it down, and I think some people probably have been waiting for a reprint to buy in. So, you know, it's, it's, it's an opportunity. I don't think that it's one of those cards that's going to be going crazy yet again because we have some other things like the banning of Simeon Spirit Guide and the general distaste we've seen of Watsy for combo decks to, or like or truly broken combo decks to exist in the meta. So I don't know. I think Gemstone Caverns is still going to have a place in modern, but it's not going to, if, if it's a, if it's a place in a busted combo deck that needs to cheat on mana, then it might not be OP. Yeah. I mean, it's the only way to cast a chalice for one on turn one now, right? 
yeah, still a thing I like doing. Yeah, this is the card's first reprint. Yeah. So for that reason, I think it's pretty safe to expect that any post-release price drops that happen will likely be relatively short-term. And this is the type of card that, because of the relative lack of quantity in the actual marketplace, we can see it rebound sooner than later to you know whatever the pre-times power revisited price is. Yeah, I, I think the long and short of this card is like, if you have wanted to play a Gemstone Caverns deck and have not bought it yet, buy it now, I think. So, you know, one of the decks where this card still sometimes pops up is I see it in dredge lists. Like, I'll see it randomly next to Gemstone Mines. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you don't always need four of these, too. Like, you could, it's the kind of thing, like you said, like, if it's, there's occasionally a weird deck that might play it now and then. And so, you know, you can you can buy one or two as a spec, maybe throw it in a deck here and there. You know, you know the decks that want four of these, and you'll get it if you're interested in those. But, you know, that, just be aware of it. It's on sale. All right, up next, one of the biggest winners from this new set. It's Tarmogoyf. Do you guys know what this card does? Should I read this card? Tarmogoyf. Is that how you say it for real? Yeah, un- unless that second O is silent. Okay. Tarmogoyf. Gotta watch out for the silent O's. Big on Dominaria. Okay, well, we all know what Tarmogoyf actually does. Now, the interesting thing about this, if you want to call it that, is it's the old future site art in the new frame and it's like the perfect combination of both things that are bad. Yeah, it's like the, the weirdest, most head scratchingest choice for the art direction on this one. Yeah, I mean, especially because they had new art on the uh, boxes, like the the shelf boxes. Like there was new Tarmogoyf art, and they just di- they just didn't use it in the card. Um, so t- Tarmogoyf is thirty one bucks shipped currently. Last I looked, which I believe was yesterday. Ooh. Uh, and that's that's actually not the Times Power Remastered version. I think Thirty One Shift is like one of the random like Ultimate Masters or something like that, or Double Masters or something. Mm-hmm. I have I have a hard time imagining Goyf getting lower than this. It is a mythic, but then again, Goyf has like slowly been getting pushed out of the power level of modern, or at least like the tier one creature power level of modern. But you know, then then bans happen, and then it sort of creeps back up into being like this hyper efficient, valuable green to drop i don't think you're gonna lose more than like maybe 10 bucks at the most on each of these over the next few years so like if you don't have goifs i think it's probably perfectly safe to get them i might buy back in honestly like just to cover my butt like i have goifs for the next year or two of modern but i I don't think it's something that's going to have a lot of upside like I, i think this is like a like low low ceiling type card here do you not have your Future sight ones anymore? No, I sold those. Uh, I, I stopped the bleeding on those uh-huh. a while ago. I see. So. I mean, Goyf is in what I would consider a tier one deck right now, which is John Shadow. John Shadow. And yeah, I think it's always going to be a useful card in decks like that. Not necessarily Shadow, but you know, the, the greatest thing about Goyf is that it can be an aggro deck. It can be a hyper-efficient threat in a mid-rangey kind of deck. It can be... Uh, redundant piece in your shadow kind of build. So I, I think it's going to have a reasonable place. It's just not the powerhouse that it was. Fatal push levels all playing fields. It's true. This is an interesting card to talk about here because it's a poster child for the impact that reprints have on prices. And specifically with Goyf, which used to be worth more than a hundred bucks for a single copy. Yeah, you're telling me. Yeah. Once upon a back, time. 
this back is when the there cards was only the only the times are the back when there's only the future site one they were like impossible to find and then it was the headline card of modern masters one in 2013 it was in all the modern master sets in all three of them yeah it's just been drifting down since then I mean, they, they they have reprinted this thing into the ground and it's still 30 bucks exactly this is the sixth printing of goif and kind of like a regular reprint set you know rather than having it as just a masterpiece or invocation or whatever um you know compared to noble hierarch which saw its fourth printing in double masters and that only costs 16 bucks give or take now this has been printed it's always a rare always a rare yeah no noble so yeah i mean i think i think 25 to 30 is like a safe space for this card to live in um if you're not trying to make a bunch of money just buy it now you might lose five ten bucks who cares like that's like a lunch here and there yeah some some sweet green yeah, I, I miss sweet green. I haven't had it <laughs> since I've been working from home for the last year. Please don't bring it up. I miss my harvest bowls. Bro, they deliver. What? All right, next card. Pact of Negation. It's a free counterspell. So I hear, better put a dice on top of your deck when you use it, though. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, after you cast it, you, you might lose. But I think that's the risk you run whenever you play counterspells. Exactly. Look out. So currently on sale for about 20% off the last reprint, which was masters 25 um looks like it's shipping for about 24 bucks previous to this it was a little over 30 bucks it's also a rare in the set so this is a card that could continue to go down if you were thinking about building amulet titan now's your chance to do that probably some other cards in the set that might go into that deck we'll talk about i don't know yeah an interesting one flagstones of trocare so this is a card that was not really much of anything i don't think but then it sort of spiked uh, up a bit i think partially because of aspiring spike i see that was a play on words that's what you're getting at yeah yeah, that's what i'm getting at okay Uh, i'm not sure i'd buy this like a 10 bucks which seems like what it's going for still as a rare versus 12 for the unlimited masters recent printing i think that's limited masters icon um and like Stan said with Pact, it's a rare. I'd probably be watching this to drop further because I think that this is going to be a well-opened set. But it's a cool card with a novel ability. And in a lot of popular decks, as people realized its uh, applicability to various strategies. Here's another land for you. Or is it? That's Dryad Arbor. Card's always been around 10 to 15 bucks, right? Yeah, just it just keeps hanging out there. It's been printed a good amount of times. And now it's it's looking like it's about a little over $7. And I think this is another rare. So this could also like maybe see five bucks, you know, after this set starts getting opened up. Yeah, I think this is a card that I would probably reach out and buy uh, now um, just because I've never had them before. And if they get to be five, six bucks a piece, it's like, why not get a couple of them for the decks that that need it someday? Okay. So not a lot of huge headliners there. It's interesting that that this remastered set doesn't really turn out to do that much stuff. Although I do have a bunch of other cards that I would throw on the list. Angel's Grace looks like it's going to go down from about 20 bucks to about 12. Some of that's because Ad Nauseam is not as good as it was. But that's still a shell that's going around. I think, you know, there's a chance that Inverter is going to get there. And so we'll see. You know, it's a card that uh, it has split second. Did I mention that? (laughs) I think one of the most interesting things about Time Spiral itself is that there's a lot of cards that do stuff that nothing else like it 
Like there's just cards that have very novel abilities. There's no rule of eight for an, I mean, there, there's something, I mean, there's kind of something like a rule of eight for angels grace, but it's not a spell in the same way. Um, and that's, and, and, and the other cards that we talked about, like dryad arbor or pact of negation or gemstone caverns like these, this is a set that did weird stuff. And so when these cards are something that's on sale, you probably don't, aren't going to expect something like this to get printed into standard. And you might be waiting for like a modern masters set or a modern horizons two or something like that. Yeah. So I think angels grace is a reasonable one. You know, walk the aeons is a card that comes up sometimes as a combo piece that looks like it's going from 10 to five to me right now. So if you like that kind of stuff, if you want to try taking turns, that could be your thing. Um, Damnation is, is one that I think is a little bit on sale. It looks like it's 10 bucks off. I think it's 45 for the old versions on Card Kingdom, for example, and now it's 35. But um, I feel like it's medium holding its floor because they put it at Mythic. But mm-hmm. if you can get 10 bucks off of it, it might be it might be worth grabbing your one for your Jund sideboard in the deck you'll never play. Or your commander decks. Yeah, commanders for sure. You know, one of the things that's interesting about the set, I'm pretty sure it has zero Planeswalkers in it. And those are some, like Liliana and Jace... Those tend to be kind of like the flagship cards in these reprint sets. So in lieu of those walkers, our mythic slots are now filled with things like Damnation and um, Gemstone, Cavern, etc. Yeah, and Chroma Angel of Fury. Fury. Sure. But I, yeah. I think the, the point I'm trying to make is like Damnation is kind of one of the standout cards that I think you could argue we're lucky to finally get a reprint of because it is such a sought after and rare effect in black and... We don't have too many printings of the card to actually bring it down otherwise. Yeah. 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 That's one of those cards where like, even as it's seen less and less modern play, it has gained value since I think it's uh, masters 15 reprinting. Um, So yeah, it's just one of those cards. Like it's valuable enough in modern here and there, but I'm guessing it's probably like an EDH staple for many black decks, like, you know, recursion decks or graveyard decks where like, yeah, I'm, I'm happy to wipe the board. Yeah. Uh, another couple of cards to think about. So boom bust looks like it's selling for like a dollar or two. Mm. If you want to get into some of those interesting things, it used to be four or $5. You know, that's the kind of card where since it's a rare, you could probably go ahead and just grab it. Uh, Mages of the moon is one that I noticed is actually on a pretty good price mm-hmm. now where I think the older versions, again, using card kingdom for benching, I think that the new one is seven ninety nine, and the old one was 15 or 16 99. And it definitely had a spike over the summer. Yeah, when, that went up when, yeah, exactly. When, um, Ponza. Uh, Ponza got popular and a couple of other decks as well. But you know, that's a card that I think is worth having around, especially if you can get it for less than $10. It seems good to me. Urborg is in this set, which is a card that continually seems to find its way back to $30. Right now, right now the presale is only at $24. Something to keep in mind there as far as lands go is that that's a card that's nice to have in your collection if you don't have one. It's probably worth finding a way to get one while it's on discount because it comes up sometimes in mono black decks. And you only got to buy one. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You usually, yeah, you only want one. And then uh, Vesuva looks to me yeah. like it's it's about... 25% off right now for the new ones. And then finally, the big one that it doesn't have anything to do with us, but is worth noting is Sliver Legion is a card that's been people have been wanting to have reprinted for forever. Uh, because Time Spiral Spiral Block was the only printing of it. It's super popular in EDH. It was a hundred dollars. 
and now it looks like you can get one for 60. So there's a chance that, um, if you want that for that, but that might be another reason to think about like this mythic slot actually still has a lot of cards that are worth a good amount of money in them. Not like hundred dollar cards, but 60 and $30 cards kind of abound in the mythic slot here. Yeah. Like a little bit of a shorthand that I noticed across the rares and mythics that, that saw some discounts is that a bunch of cards are like 10 bucks off. And if you're thinking about picking up like play sets of something that adds up over time. So even though you might be spending like 20 bucks for something that's usually around 30 or 35, depending on how much you pick up, like those savings do add up. Exactly. So this is the interesting thing or kind of like the main thing about time spiral is there's all these cards that they already had in it. But Dave, what if I wanted to spend more for cards that I already owned? Well, there's a really fun way for you to spend more money on cards in this in this set, Stan. Would you like to do that? Sure, why not? I just got a stimulus check. Yeah, why not? Well, we talked about it earlier, but the inclusion of some of Eternal Format's most popular cards in Old Borders form has got people very excited <laughs> for maybe good reasons and maybe for bad reasons, but... They do look pretty cool. The weirdest, the weird thing about this is you have to keep in mind that these cards are one per pack. We don't Very know common. how often there's going to be foils of them, the old border cards. I don't think we have a great grasp of that, although Shane has some thoughts. And there doesn't really seem to be a rarity associated with them. It's kind of like yeah. the story is that it's one sheet of cards and they're just putting them in. Is that right, Shane? Yeah, it's like uh, the same rarity. So you get a Thoughtseize or you get a Secret Plans. Good luck. But don't they exist in the same rarity slot of the pack? So your Thoughtseize will be in the rare slot. I don't believe that's the case. Okay. I don't know. Is it? I mean, that would make it a lot different story. Let me let me do a little research into that real so this, quick. So the, the Seth, Seth over at MTG Goldfish has a good outline of how these cards will exist in packs. And his statement is you will open one in each pack. They're all the same rarity. So your odds of opening any of these cards is the same. That's absurd because what it means is you're going to get highly variant boxes. Yes. Where if someone opens up a box of this, they could open 12 rares for example, or a, you know, a way higher frequency of them than you would expect to see in a normal set. And then someone else is going to get a whole bunch of commons. Now, it's not a... I, I Looking through what the old border cards were, it didn't feel like there was a kind of like normal common to uncommon to rare to mythic just distribution among these either. It feels like a lot of them are rares and mythics that people want. And what's interesting is some of the valuation and at least the multiplier over the normal card price is completely not related to the rarity of the actual card. Like, so a young pyromancer is very expensive in this old border simply because of its desirability. So it's, you know, been an uncommon, I believe in, in almost, you know, bunch of sets and even regular old sets and reprint sets. There's a lot of young PZs out there. Yeah. It's like a 50 cent card. The old border reprint is 15 bucks, right? So wow. that's 30, that's 30 times multiplier Sick. over like, just like buying the normal little card at your LGS, right? But that can't but, last. Well, it definitely can. <laughs> here's, here's why it can here. Like, and let's, let's, let's get into the, even the crazy thing about the foils. Right. Okay. So Seth did something interesting about the foils in terms of the number that will likely exist. And 
Watsi is a publicly traded company and has public revenue numbers. And so based on revenue numbers, you can create a general estimate on how many boxes of this time spot will remaster they can probably sell, right? Just combined with all their other stuff. So on the low end, this would mean somewhere in the range of like 1,000 foil old bordered cards of each one. On the high end, this is, this is the high end, about 4,000 of each foil old bordered card, simply because there's no rarity distribution here. So perspective on that, there's about 4260 of each rare in alpha and beta combined. So if you wanted a, a black border Mox Pearl or a black border Lotus or something like that, there are 4260 of each of those. The most that will ever be printed probably of these foil old border time spiral cards is about 4,000. 4, Note that, of course, they don't have the power level of a Mox Pearl Thanks. or a Black Lotus. Speak for yourself. Monastery Swift Spear, <laughs> unite. <laughs> but that, that means something like a foil old border Ponder or a foil old border Thoughtseize is basically going to have the rarity of an Alpha or Beta, beta Lotus. That's something. That is something, especially since way more people want to play with those cards than actually want to play with Lotuses. Yeah, I mean, there's a collectability aspect of the Lotus versus the playability of uh, a foil Thoughtseize with cool art or something like that. Are are there estimates for the foil cards out there anywhere right now? I haven't seen any price I've estimates. I've seen very few. Like I've seen like a thoughts. I, I saw a Thoughtseize pre-order on like TCG for maybe like three twenty-five. Three hundred twenty-five dollars. I'm I'm not sure that's a bad buy. What? I'm not sure that's a bad idea. Um, even the non-foil old boarders right now are selling at very high premiums. Like prized amalgam is like seven bucks when the cheapest regular version you can get is like two. Swift Spear. You know, that has more general utility and playability. It's like, you know, 15, 17 bucks an old border. That's like four bucks for a regular border version, which is still something like that. That shows you how good Swiss beer is. Right. Like, this is an uncommon that's been reprinted a few times and still four bucks. Um, Lava Spike is like 12 bucks. You know what I mean? Like Leyline of the Void is 550 in its uh, recent corset printing. 35 bucks in the old border treatment right now. That's still cheaper than Leyline was before it was in yeah, it's a good M19 point. or whatever, M20. Um, so in general, I'd say to expect to pay anywhere from like four to six times the price for any popular old border printing. Or like with, like I said, with Young Peasy, maybe 30 times for a bit. So let's say we get really lucky and crack open a foil of old bold, old borders is the advice to hold for... Oh, I probably would. It, it's not selling to the hype. It's to hold until the price increases over time because of the lack of general supply. Well, I think the, I think you can probably tell on certain types of cards, right? Like if you're getting a foil secret plans, maybe just sort of out it to the people who want to collect their playset, perhaps, right? Like maybe they're just like, I want to get one of every foil old border. Like I'm just a collector. Like people who get the pre-release cards or something like that, right? Um but yeah, like if I'm if I'm gonna get anything that has playability in modern or EDH and it's a foil old border, I'm personally gonna hold that for years because this is the kind of thing that would be, I think, more less likely for them to reprint than a lot of things. Like like kind of like a masterpiece or an expedition or something like that, right? And then what are you supposed to do with the your fortune after 20 years? I don't know, man. Um, retire early. Convert it to Dogecoin? Yeah, just get Doge immediately. Um so it's for me, it's it's hard to suggest anyone like pick these up. And I'm, by these, I mean just the regular old borders, because 
unless they're like diehard fans of, of a particular card or a particular deck or a strategy, like these are a lot more expensive than the regular ones. So this is not a, like, this is not me saying, I think you should buy into these. I think this is just something you should be aware of and be aware of the quantity issue and the fact that there's not a rarity to these. So if you're kind of waiting for some of these cards to go down, you might be waiting in perpetuity. Uh, but there, there are a few not huge price differences that I did want to call out for certain cards. And there's only a few here. So one of the cards that I think uh, is interesting and point, point outable is Gogmouth Thran Physician. 34 bucks is what I saw for the old border. It's only about a double up from its Modern Horizons one printing at 17. If you like Yogg decks or play it in EDH, I think you should consider this. I wouldn't be surprised if like a more broken synergy uh, leads to this old border printing jumping uh, much higher. It's also has some EDH cred. That's not something you should ignore. I think it seems like a decent deal at 34. It's the kind of card, like I even, I think that um, a well-regarded player, I think I saw uh, Claudio, I think, bring this to a modern tournament this weekend. He was just like, yeah, streaming Yawgmoth combo in modern. These are people who know what they're doing. Yeah, Tom Ross is still on that deck quite frequently too, right? Yeah, I mean, it's a real deck. I think that people might be sleeping on it a bit. I think that it's a powerful card with a novel effect and it's only a double up, you know, only in quotes, but think about it. All right, next up, what else did you identify with your Shane brain? Chalice of the Void. I think this might be a sneaky buy. It's its lowest price of a regular printing right now is 34 bucks. This brown border old frame is 55 right now for pre-orders. That's only it's a $20 premium, yes. But this is like the most visually distinct difference between new and old in a lot of ways. The the brown artifact to like sort of the gray uh, new artifact frame. A lot of people like brown artifact. There's competition, of course, for the masterpiece and the judge promo of Chalice, of course, however, but I think I might buy four of these because did, I don't have any. Did you already buy them? Did you? Mm, I keep thinking about it. <laughs> I'm, if, if I do, I will buy before this episode airs. <laughs> so, and the last and not least, Ancient Stirrings, about three bucks for the reprint. Dirt cheap for the older printings, of course, right? Like for 12 bucks, though, you're not going to likely lose too much. If you want to play the card, you're going to have these cool older printings for like the cost of maybe like a foot long combo at Jersey Mike's, right? Like you, you drop 12 bucks. Wait, these are the, the old border versions are pre-selling for $3? Three bucks, yeah. Yeah, it's a snap buy. Yeah, right? Yeah, if you're a Tron Sneak. person, get them. Yeah. So, Shane, these Chalice of the Voids. Yes. And anyone who's thinking about snatching up some old border cards, don't you want to wait for packs to get opened at least for a couple days before buying into pre-release prices? I think I think there there are some cards I think that are overpriced and some cards I think that are underpriced. And I think that I think Chalice is one of the ones that is currently underpriced, and that's why I'm identifying it as such. I I think this like could be wrong. But I think that I do not think that this card will go down. I think people will start identifying it as, oh, I need four of these. I've never bought four of these. It looks really cool. And I'm going to get my play set. This is typically a card you get a play set of too. Like it's, I mean, some decks, of course, might run a couple on the sideboard. That's always been a little bit weird for me. But yeah, you're going to play this card. And if you don't have them, maybe buy these weird brown ones. 
There is a really weird dynamic here that you're talking about, I think a little bit though, Stan, which is that, you know, again, to crib from MTG Goldfish a little bit, you know, um, Seth had tweeted out, I don't know, a week ago or something like that, where he was kind of like, hey, you know, the expected value of just the old border cards that you're going to pull from a box of, of Time Spire already mastered right now is $250. Just the old border cards. That's the expected value of what you're going to get out of it. You know, doing the math, averaging it all out, what each of that, that slot is worth, and then 36 of them or 20, I guess 24 of them probably. But I actually don't even know how many packs are in one of these boxes. I could check. Um, but what he's saying is that it's worth it to open and crack a box just to get the old border cards out right now because of where the pre-sale prices are. The thing that can happen here that's very strange is, you know, while there's some supply, there's a wholesale price floor, right? It's the amount that distributors have to pay to get a hold of these boxes from Wizards of the Coast. Like the direct source cost is still active. Like this is a limited print run, but there's still only there's still only so there's a fixed cost to what these are, right? Sure. The question is, like you said, is what's going to happen when people start opening these boxes? Are prices going to go up? Are prices going to go down? Frequently, what happens is prices go down on some things and maintain on on other things. And they're, it's much more granular than that, right? Where you're going to get all these these cards that, you know, at the mythic slot that don't change or sometimes go up a little bit because more people want to get them because there's slightly more supply. And then you have all these other ones at the rare slot that go down, 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 down. The thing that's really could happen here is that the old border cards might maintain their price or only go down a little bit and all the other cards in the boxes might totally crater where the only reason anybody is opening any of these boxes is because they want the old border cards and don't care about anything else and so those go on super duper fire sale which is good news for anyone who's trying to pick up tarmogoyfs and gemstone caverns right like right those are the cards that could potentially benefit from uh old border hype yeah there's kind of like three scenarios right like one is it's all about old borders the other one is people ultimately don't care about old borders that much and the and they go down while the cards in the actual set maintain in price that's the least likely scenario to me and then the third one is they all kind of go down to kind of like match the retail price of the boxes. And I guess the last, last one is that box prices just go crazy sky high because the <laughs> print run ends and then everybody just wants boxes of these to crack and it's kind of over from there. Yeah. That's my issue with this. And I don't really want to make any firm recommendations. Anyway, we're not a finance cast. You know that we're not financial brains. We're not making big moves in our collections. We often keep more than we should. Um, but these are what we want to do, I think, is make people aware of what's available. And I think that people need to watch, like Stan is saying, maybe just watch the first week. You're probably not going to get burned too badly by waiting a little bit. Like maybe Chalice does drop five bucks, or maybe it goes up five bucks. And you're like, well, this trend line isn't what I like. And I'm going to just jump on it now and I'm going to lose 20 bucks in this playset. Life goes on. I'm already spending 200 bucks on this. So, you know, I've, I've got it. Magic is not a game for. I mean, magic is not magic can be a game for people with uh 
normal budgets, but it's also, but I think some people like spending a lot of their Bitcoin cash on this as well. Yeah. And I think that that's actually a good thing, especially if what happens is the old border cards maintain or go up in price and drive down the cost of the regular border cards, like we were saying a minute ago, because that makes those cards that people just want to play with even more accessible. And then the people who want to bling out their stuff just get to bling it out. And, you know, we witnessed this a little bit originally with the masterpiece sets when they first came out in battle for Zendikar, like it made that everything in battle for Zendikar was like super cheap because the cards are terrible, but also just because there was like just Gideon ally of Zendikar was expensive and the masterpieces and then everything else went down. And yeah, and we saw that repeated in the, the future um, masterpieces or whatever they were called. Yeah. They were the inventions in, in Kaladesh. So yeah, the masterpiece idea was really strong. Watsy, perhaps unsurprisingly kind of messed up with the quantity that they did. And they were like, well, we don't have any more ideas for this. We're going to have to stop doing this. Well, it turns out that they did. And this is just an extension of that idea, right? They had, they had the full art things. I think that the truth is, you know, people have talked about or complained about this a lot over the last year. And I still kind of mostly maintain that it's good that they're doing things that are innovative and interesting with what are essentially cosmetics in real life because it's adding value to the to the printed cards in a way that mostly doesn't detract from people who don't want to pay super premium prices for cards and so what it does is it makes the non-premium card prices lower now the problem with that is it's harder for you to sell into and out of the cards that you have sometimes but I think, you know, at a lower overall cost, it's probably better in general. And I think they're fun too. Like they definitely hit a nerve with this idea of doing a bunch of old border cards. The list of cards that they decided to to do with it is absurd. It's like they went through and picked every card that you would ever want to do it. Yeah. And just say like, here they all are at once. I mean, the only thing that's not on here is like lightning bolt, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. because it exists so. in old border. Yeah, correct. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Cause these are supposed to be all first time they've ever been in old border. Yeah. So just some quick high-level takeaways as you're thinking about how to spend your money with this product. Don't think of the old border cards as meaningful reprints that are meant to introduce more supply of constructed staples. These are the premium products of the set. Yeah, they're the cosmetics, like Dave said. Yeah, and the foils are absurdly so, we think. On the other hand, you are going to see you know a dozen or several dozen cards within the modern frame meaning their actual reprints of cards from the original time spiral block, which could see short to long, potentially long-term discounts, um, especially cards like Tarmogoyf, Sliver Legion, maybe even Gemstone Cavern, and, and hopefully Damnation. These are the type of cards that might actually get a meaningful, lasting discount on their single price. There's also going to be a chunk of cards, likely at rare, that can continue to go down as more packs are opened. And these yeah. these are things like Summoner's Pact, Mages of the Moon, Flagstones of Charlotte Care, Dryad Arbor, Urberg, Angel's Grace. Yeah. And I think the highest variable is are these old border printings. I think there's a lot of uncertainty here. You know, it's what's the actual demand? What's the act, you know, what what is the risk of supply doesn't meet demand? What's the risk of demand outpaces supply? Um, I think this is just like a special printing for people who really like this old frame look. They, they trying to time the market's probably a really hard and challenging and potentially silly thing to try to do. I think there's a, I think there's a larger risk of waiting than there is of buying early. But again, 
We are not a financial podcast. Uh, make your own decisions here. There are some cards I am planning on picking up, I think, now rather than later. And I'll take my lumps if they go down. Mine might be Monastery Swift Spear. Ooh, yeah. Go with those little bolts. <laughs> All right. That wraps up the breakdown for this week. We're going to take a quick break. And when we return, we're going to share our first impressions of Historic with the recent injection of Anthology 4. Stay with us. So this week we thought it'd be fun after talking a little bit about uh, some modern-y stuff, some non-arena stuff, paper stuff. We thought it would be fun to check back in on Historic and look at how the format has been doing since Anthologies 4 came out. And it's been interesting, right? You know, it's been fun to pay attention to social media during the cycle because people are pretty clearly excited, or at least they have a lot to talk about with it. But, um, you know, we knew going into this that a lot of these cards would be duds for competitive play. And there are others that we think are really working out, but we just want to talk to each other and see about a couple of different areas, what our impressions were about the things that are going on right now in Historic. And I think we have four or five areas to talk about, but the first one, the first thing that's on everyone's mind is, of course, is Death Shadow actually a thing in Historic or not? It is, is it, legal. Is you it can't good? deny that the card is legal to play in the format. Nope, it is, it is legal to play in the format for now. Definitely going on the suspended list soon, though, I'm just saying. Yeah, I mean, as soon as the card was spoiled, people started theory crafting different lists and various color combinations. A lot of building going around around this card specifically. And I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that it's such a beloved modern card. And as older cards get introduced in historic, I think people want to try to apply some of those non-rotating passions from paper play into this shiny new format that seems to have a very bright future. So far... We've seen Death Shadow in Grixis, Red Black Aggro, Mono Black Aggro, Red Black Arcanist, Mardu, Cycling. I saw one of our patrons, Mickey S, try to put it in Esper Auras Why not? as an additional threat. Why not? The list might go on and on. People are trying to put Shadow in everything. Turns out there's not a high barrier to putting a card in your deck that only costs one black and can sometimes be a 12-12. Yeah, people were very amped about this. Um, I mean, we recorded, we record on Sunday now, uh, at least this week between Thursday and now, I think I saw about 80% not, does not feel like an exaggeration when like in best of one testing, like when I was testing decks there, I was trying to test some best of one, some best of three. It was everywhere. Like people really wanted to be testing this and they really wanted to be a thing and figure out what that thing is. Yeah, I was I was shocked by that as well. And it felt me it felt good to me to be playing a shadow deck because that meant that I was also playing a lot of Blood Chief's Thirst and Fatal Push, which is good against those decks. And so you're kind of like, okay, we're all playing this card now, so we have to play all these other cards now to kill this card that we all have. But it, I had a lot of mirrors or like quasi mirrors where someone would be playing their normal game plan and then suddenly be like, "Hi, here's two Death Shadow," and I would be like, "Wait, what?" <laughs> Uh, nice to meet you. I'm, I'm Dave. I'm in platinum currently, and I'm seeing this all the time in the Braggy. platinum. Oh, look at this well. guy in platinum. Oh. Oh. oh, is that a brag? Doesn't feel <laughs> like one. Well, just because I'm still still down in gold, I've I've been grinding my way up through gold the last couple of days because I have not been playing arena much hey, lately. We, but we've, yeah. been, we've been on we've been on modern lately. It's that's a very fair thing for us to not be focusing on. I have dailies to complete. That that's when you just run out like your your jank blue 
one drop deck in uh, in play mode. I don't have drink anymore. Oh, all of my decks are tier two at least. Uh, the only reason I bring up platinum though is that at that rank, I too see a lot of shadow, but it tends to be a lot of the same offenders, different versions of red, black, and uh, Mardu, which Dave mentioned, seems to be one of the ones that comes up frequently. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I, I'll even say I tried the Grixis shell or a Grixis shell for it. Um, can I give you guys a little tease to chew on? Yeah, well, let, me, let me chew that tease. As long as it's not spoiling too much. I have been mostly unimpressed with the card Death Shadow, except in one deck where I think yeah. it comes together quite nicely. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I was playing best of three in low plat today because, like I said, we've been focusing on modern. But um, yeah, I haven't seen it as much already. So I'm curious if it's if it's falling off a little bit, if people aren't. Uh, quite as crazy about it if they're like oh this isn't that great and we'll see the 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 true shadow head stick with it and develop the best list and that's what we're going to be talking about today i think is the initial experiences that we've had playing with and against these decks and what our general opinion on shadow in historic is yeah and i thought it would be fun for us to do kind of like some short capsule reviews of the different uh, archetypes that i had talked about earlier so why don't we start with the one that i think everybody was curious about off the bat is there a home in historic for a Grixis Death Shadow deck? Yeah, so hold on, what ostensibly what would be in this? Like, would it be like cheap creatures, cheap counter magic, cantrips? Like, what's the concept? Yeah, I mean, I think if you're trying to port Gr- the modern deck over here, what you're trying to do is probably make a Luris deck that has access to Scourge and Shadow and Arcanist. And potentially another threat like dragon sprite, sprite dragon, not dragon sprite, sprite dragon. Uh, cantrips like opt to get you where you're going, and some form of counters to help you protect your stuff. Now, the decks that I've seen with this, their their counter suite was mostly based around uh, spell pierce and that kind of thing. But um, it's tough because we don't have the same range of things available as we do in modern. And then also, you would have, of course, the core cards that go with it. Fatal Push, Blood Chiefs, Thirst, and Thoughtseize. So can I read to you the four creatures that appeared in a modern Grixis Shadow deck that went 6-2 in a modern challenge a week ago? Sure. Let's hear it. There's 14 creatures total, but it's really just four of them. It was four Death Shadow, four Dreadhorde Arcanist, three Sprite Dragon, three Kroxa. Kroxa, yeah. There's Kroxa too. Yeah, good point. So maybe not Scourge in this one, but... I, I, and all I'm doing, I'm just bringing that up to say, these are all historic cards. Correct. Now, the spell suite is different. Like, we don't have Inquisition, Lightning Bolt, Serum Visions, or Thought Scour, but we do have Thoughtseize. We do have yeah. Fatal Push. Yeah. And we have a bad Unearth, so... Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. I mean, I, Scourge is probably not able to be played in this deck, because you're not going to be trying to... You're likely not going to be trying to... Um, pressure their life total at the same time that you're knocking yourself down. So it'll be tough to play that card uh, as it is. However, I do think that when I played against this, it felt like the spells were significantly far enough behind that it wasn't really getting it done for me, especially because it's really hard for Arcanist without direct damage. I think without having lightning bolt or something like that as part of it, if all you're doing is recurring thought sees or 
uh, or like fatal push, Arcanist just doesn't seem that great there, I guess. I agree. And I think part I think part of the problem is that getting revolt on fatal push is, is harder in historic than in modern. Just I think sure. that's objectively true. And yeah, I mean, you don't have as good one drops to recur. You know, like maybe hitting multiple thoughtsies with Arcanist does feel good, or maybe taking down something with four toughness using a single shock might feel good. But there's just a lot of matchups where fatal push or shock aren't very good. And I don't think you have the tools in Grixis to kind of pivot the way you might in a modern Grixis list. Yeah. Shane, did you see any Grixis shadow lists or what do you think? Not a one. Not a one. I, I saw, I saw way more like mono black Rakdos Mardu. I never saw anyone trying Grixis stuff. Okay. Well, let's move on to the next place that I seem to see a lot of it in historic then let's talk about shadow ending up in red black arcanist i felt like i played against straight up arcanist a traditional kind of like the red black shell that we're used to seeing in historic with just shadow popped in there a bunch of times over the weekend don't know how i felt about it but they mostly felt like they were running shadow over individual copies of some of their spicy cards like croxa Pyro, young pyromancer and Valky. Like singleton Valky or something like that. Correct. It's like, oh, I'll just do a shadow instead. Yeah. And it seemed like some were still running village rights and claim the firstborn and some weren't. So there was even a little bit of like div- diverging from some of the stuff that really makes Arcanist a good grindy deck to be able to try to get shadow in there as well. Question for you. If you cast a death shadow, mm-hmm. I am. I'm. I don't think there is any. There's no trigger. There's no state-based trigger. Like let's say you let's say you're at 18 life, right? And you want and you wanted to cast a shadow, right? You don't get a chance to like claim it. I mean, I'm sorry, uh, like village rice. Village rice it? No. Nope. Yeah. Exactly. It's it's just like oh, you're stupid. It's dead. Yep. Yep. Or forgetful. Yeah. Did anybody did anybody test to see what happens when you cast a shadow into more than 12 life? (laughs) There's an animation where it just shakes its finger at you, should like I, like Matumbo. Like should I do that really quick while you guys are talking? You no, know, please stay off of Arena. We need you for the show. So, Stan, this is a deck that you play. I think, Shane, you have this shell too, right? Red Black Arcanist? Oh, yeah. This is actually this is something I want to spend some time on uh, this week. I, I, I have a little bit of time before I go back to work. I, I want to grind some, some historic. I'm, I've played so many games of of gruel that i don't think i need to play it anymore even though i think it's fast and good i might try some arcanist just to get just to get good at it so that's a that's a long way of saying yes dave i do have it interesting so in a list like this the thing that i think shadow might be good for which people might not want to do is i can almost see it as a sideboard card to bring in when you take out your Croxas because people are bringing in graveyard hate against you and graph Digger's cage is really good against arcanist and shadow doesn't care. Yeah. I was kind of thinking that makes me think Stan about like when and what are you doing with this card versus what you were already doing, right? Like cutting back on a card like Valky or like pyromancer or like Croxa, those are all very different cards in this deck and cutting back on a Valky to play shadow this is not a one-to-one swap. This is not like I'm, I'm removing an early threat to get a death shadow down. Really what you're saying is like, I'm, I'm removing a potential huge late game threat in my Tybalt for a potentially huge creature 
in death shadow i think yeah and i think what you're trading is like a real grind plan Mm -hmm. to into a plan where suddenly in the middle of the game you have a giant threat they have to deal with that maybe they weren't prepared for so you make a board that has like gets kind of like a little wide you get some value after off of arcanist and you're kind of like doing this attrition battle and then you're kind of going like okay now i'm going to play a five five death shadow and then try to try to get it across the finish line with that and i don't know like it didn't feel great to me but i don't pilot this deck i just know that it was not hard to beat the decks that had this as their kind of new mid slash end game this makes me think about sort of a larger conversation point about shadow why not have it now in that how does this operate how does this card typically operate in modern versus how is it being used in a deck like arcanist right and i i don't necessarily think that that is a one-to-one model like this like the way that's being used in arcanist is like eventually shadow will be useful for me but it might be a dead card for a while as i take some damage i'm not going to do as much self damage in arcanist traditionally as i am in like a a, a full bore shadow list like we're going to talk about in a second like is that a good idea like is 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 there more of a model in that existing in modern that I'm forgetting? Like, are there like eventual shadow decks, or are most of them sort of self harm, turn the corner really quickly with an aggressive swing? Well, I'm thinking about Grixis Shadow, where you're very very rarely casting it on turn one. I think you <laughs> need a fetch and three street wraith to get it down on one. Yeah, which is doable but possible yeah that's, well i mean that that's not exactly the model i'm i'm professing here but right. i'm saying like you know but, it's, it's it's more of an aggressive tempo strategy versus like i'm casting this eventually as a big threat right well exactly that's my point like grixis shadow is a fast deck like that's one of the reasons why it's had a storied history in the format is because it can present like a five five on turn two and basically you have inevitability as quickly as soon as turn three or four and even in that deck, Shadow, you're usually casting it on like turns two or three as a plan B to your Gurmog Anglers. Yeah. I mean, I think that this is a, th- it's an interesting discussion, but it's mostly, I think it's a good reminder for people to have that I don't think that Shadow has to be an aggressive dex. Mm-hmm. And I think that some of the best decks in modern with shadow were moments when jund was you know traverse or four color shadow where it was a traversey kind of grindy build where you could go either way you know there's a lot these shadow decks have a lot of play to them and i think that if you kind of think only about it in the context of how aggro can i get with shadow that's not the only way the card can be used and arcanist is certainly not a deck that is trying to aggro people out Right, and I, and I think that's part of the problem. Here, here's what I'll say to your first point, Dave, about Shadow doesn't need to be an aggro card. I think it wants to be, though. Because if, if you're playing chicken with your life total, you need to have a proactive plan to close out the game before someone exploits the fact that you're like at 10 life on turn three because of right. your own doing. But remember what, what Everett said last week when we were talking about this. He was kind of like, the main thing that you're doing with a card like Shadow is one-for-wanting people 
to be able to then play a treat threat while you leave up some additional form of interaction for people to have. So you can continue that like resource race. So you're trying to win a car, uh, like a mana efficiency game. And that doesn't necessarily mean that you have to win with speed. Sure. This makes me think, and this is, this might sound harsh, but I'm going to, it's harsh about myself as well. And that (laughs) this is a card that is in some of the most challenging decks to play in modern challenging, challenging decks to play well in modern. Mm-hmm. And we are interested introducing it to people who have potentially never played modern before in their lives. They've only played arena. They're buying into historic or they're buying into the anthology. They're like, I've heard about this dash shadow card. And there's going to be a lot of people who don't know, I think how to play shadow well on arena. And I am one of those people because I am not a good shadow player in modern, um, especially something like Grixis, right? Which is more of kind of a tricksy style. And so I, I think that this is going to be a learning curve for a lot of people in how to use a deck like this, how to get max value out of a shadow. Like you said, Dave, is this like an, a grindy strategy? Is this an aggressive strategy? When and how am I trying to use shadow? Am I Is this an eventual thing or is it like a aggressive get my life total like, you know, low type thing. It's a whole new format. Mm-hmm. There are, I mean, I'm kind of jumping the gun here. This is kind of stuff that is maybe better for a conclusion, but I think it fits here. Like there's a different format. And like Stan said, there are different ways for people to turn the corner against you. And I think there are more decks that are looking to do that in historic than there even are in modern in terms of like capitalizing on your low life. Right. Like there's Embercleave is a very playable card in this format. There's sure. someone, someone could untap an or is you to death with, with very good ease, right? So there's a different way of even playing a card like Shadow. And so I'm willing to check my current perspective of I don't think, this is just me spoiling it, I don't think Shadow is super great in Historic, but at the same time, I think that it can be once people figure it out and we get the best lists and we get the best play style and the best way of using a card like this in a very different format than modern. So should we just throw out the rest of the notes or do you want to go through these? <laughs> no, other? let's talk about this I'm next deck. Kidding. It's no, similar, no, but different. No, but here, here's what I was going to say it's was, I, I think it's, I think it's a good point. I think part of the reason you're feeling like kind of un, unease with this is that I don't think Arcanist is the right way to get the most value out of the interaction with, with shadow. Like, I don't think it's the right threat to help you finish up the, the game, you know, in the same way that I think that Kroxa is a really good threat for the to help you finish up the the game in that sense. Um, it's nice that Shadow doesn't make you um, use your graveyard as well, mm-hmm. you know, in the way that Kroxa does, but it also puts a lot of life pressure on you that I don't think you're really all that comfortable taking on as a liability in the Arcanist shell. And again. I don't really have a lot of um, experience playing Arcanist, but that's just what I, I think it might be because you can't really recover at all. But let's say, so we so we talked about a tempo, what ostensibly would be a tempo deck in Modern and Grixis, and we talked about Arcanist, which is kind of mid-rangey. Let's talk about a couple of aggro builds that people have been trying because really one of the most popular decks for Shadow right now in Modern is red-black of some persuasion, whether it's splashing green for Tarmogoy, for whether it's just straight-up kind of Luris, aggro, bauble, shadow, Rakdos that we were all into. 
And that's what we're looking at here. Another shell that I saw a lot was Running Scourge and Death Shadow alongside Knight of the Ebon Legion and Soulscar Mage, which is kind of like a complete port of the deck that exists in modern. We're going to run Shock and Pillar of Flame because those are the best one mana burn spells that are available in, in Historic. Two damage is very different than three, of course, especially if you're going to the face. But Fatal Push, it has Fatal Push, Thirst, and Thoughtseize as well. There's no protection in this deck. You have to be prepared to lose your creatures. It's nothing of that kind of like trying to protect the queen. You're really just trying to aggro people out. This is a Luris deck that, um, you know, I think it's a good foundation for an aggro deck, but it doesn't seem like it's really connecting either at this point. This was the list I was seeing the most at first. Mm -hmm. Some kind of red-black aggro, not red-black Arcanist. Can I ask what was the foundation here? Was it just like sort of the self-damage lands? Like what, what were people using red for? Cause I can imagine what the black was for burn. I mean, you're using it to, to run shock and, and pillar of flame and soul scar yeah. mage. Just so to you're trying to get creatures out of your way. Yeah. And you're just trying to get the best prowess threat in there, you know, Knight of the Ebon Legion and prowess and scourge and shadow all scale. Right. And so that's, that's the idea. And you get to play untapped shatter skull smashings on plan because of the shadow. Right. I think, Which is really good in in these decks, by the way. Spoiler, yes, yes. But yeah, I think we should talk about the mana after we list all these decks. But right, I was saying this is the list I was seeing the most common at first, and I think it actually has explosive potential. But these decks don't have a lot of ways to push through damage against what I was doing, which is presenting a super wide board with elves, and I think. Shadow, in particular, one of the reasons why um, uh, Teamer Battle Rage is such an important card in modern is because pushing through a ton of damage is how you close out the games. And even though some people are playing Barge in or Crash Through, even that, like even Teamer Battle Rage is frequently a two of. And without having ways to push through damage and not having really good ways to um, go to face with better burn spells, it's a little harder to overcome what might be a really wide board. And and even though I was seeing this a lot at first i feel like this deck might have a harder time keeping up with the format just because like all these go wide angels elves or other creature strategies just do a really good way of gumming up what shadow in red black is trying to do yeah it's just not efficient enough like the spells aren't powerful enough for one mana to really make it happen especially the non-black spells right this would make me wonder whether red black aggro needs to be a shadow deck and whether we were trying to find a home for shadow by accident found this red black aggro shell that can mix both cheap creatures with the Luris plan and relatively effective cheap interactive spells for a way to apply early, early pressure and maybe even play a grindy mid game without doing the self harm uh, and diluting your plan that shadow sort of forces you to. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, it's tough to find a more efficient one mana and two mana threat than death shadow and scourge. Right. And so if you're running burn, where you can get them down. And if you're running cheap creatures like Knight of the Ebon Legion and Soul Scar Mage, where you can attack in and get Scourge down still, you know, I don't know. I think that, that it fits in a compelling way. I don't know what those other cards would be, but the, um, the main problem here is it's just not fast enough. I don't think. And the real aggro decks, I think in historic, they go wide. They mm -hmm. do like a weird wide trick mm -hmm. or, they make one super giant thing that like you can't kill with red 
cards. And so since you have black cards, it's great in this deck to be able to help you with decks like that. But it just feels like the, you know, you don't have redundancy with Soulscar Mage, which is huge, of course. And you don't have a way to cast like four spells on turn three. Like that's where I think you get a little bit out of whack with this. All right. We started with Grixis. We cut out the blue, went to red, black. Let's see what happens if we just cut out the red and go to straight mono black. <laughs> right. So there's a deck that's kind of similar that people have been talking about. And in fact, Martin Yuza wrote about it on Channel Fireball last week. I saw uh, Andre, uh, Andrea Mangucci tweeting about it. I also saw our faithful friend Mickey S. Turtle Power uh, talking about this in our Slack. And that's a mono black aggro shadow shell. Mm-hmm. And the deal here is it's kind of like what you would expect from mono black aggro almost in pioneer, right? It's Knight of the Ebon Legion. It's dread wanderer. It's scrap heap scrounger. And then with scourge and, and shadow stapled into it to give the deck a bit more kind of like giant threat top end. It's also enabled by a few interesting tricks like demonic embrace and mm-hmm. feed the swarm in order to get your life total down very quickly if you want to. They're both interesting pieces, and they give you uh, like a destroy effect from from feed that can get rid of an enchantment even, and then Embrace gives you the, the that kind of like overrun effect that Stan was talking about from Team or Battle Rage, where you give your threat flying, and then recurring Demonic Embrace gets you uh, a life loss, which also helps make your shadows and scourges even bigger from there. I've heard really mixed things about the deck. I didn't run into it, but you know, like I said, Andrea Mangucci was saying, Oh, I think this is a great version of it for historic. So is Martin Yuza. Mickey had less promising results from it. I do think that there's kind of an interesting tension here where once you get down to a monocolor deck, you don't have a reason to benefit from having all these shock lands in your deck. All you're doing is hurting yourself to be able to get your shadows bigger. You're not benefiting from having the extra mana. And so I think there's a weird thing going on there where like you're kind of leaving some of the value on the table by by just playing a single color with this. And it makes it so that you pretty much only have the attacking plan to do stuff. And there's not really a whole lot else going on. It's kind of like, I'm going to attack, I'm going to attack, I'm going to fly over and attack. And if there's anything that gets in the way of that kind of single-minded plan that you can't stop with a, thought seat, a well-timed thought seize, you're just kind of in trouble. Yeah. Yeah, like this, at least what's good about this is like you can recover from Wraths fairly decently with something like uh, Scrap Heap Scrounger or Gutter Bones, which is an advantage that this has over some other similar decks that are just kind of like I want to swing and get in there and end the game type thing. But yeah, what you're saying is right, Dave, which is like that's kind of the I think the pressure that all of these kind of shadow decks is facing, which is like, how much do I need to care about lowering my life versus uh, have a game plan that's not as fragile with my life total? And I think that's kind of what people are going to figure out uh, as we continue to please kind of decks. And also I think what's interesting about this deck, at least the user build in his article is it's like not even that much removal, right? Like right. fatal push has been the kind of card that you're going to see four of in every pioneer mono black, but we're seeing only a couple fatal push, like maybe in heartless act, like you said, feed the swarm, a blood chief's thirst. But like primarily this is like, I'm going to interact with 
the, the spells that I need to get out of your hand with Thoughtseize, maybe get a creature or two out of the way with my removal, but I want to be attacking and flying with my demonic embraces. Yeah. There's better mono black decks in historic. Just play vampires. Yeah. And then there's even the weirdest version, which is the, the one that I saw and played after seeing it tweeted by Yeoman five, which is taking the cycling shell, which Shane is going to talk about a little bit later and just having death shadow in there as a threat alongside the Fox. What's the Fox called? Flourishing Fox, flourishing, flourishing Fox, Fox. Yeah. having it in there as a threat alongside flourishing Fox. That was pretty interesting, especially when you're trying to figure out, can I cast Zenith Flare and keep my Death Shadows <laughs> alive? Because Zenith Flare, what a card. We'll talk about that in a little bit. But, you know, I had a little bit of success with this in the sense of now, uh, you know, having Footfall Crater in there as a four of is a nice way to make Shadow be able to come down and attack quickly and have Trample. So you get four of those because they have Cycling and they play into your Zenith Flare plan. You don't have as much kind of tension of playing this card that doesn't do much in some situations. There's also the Fight card, which I forget what it's called, that cycles for one that's actually reasonable. It's called Go for Blood or something like that. Yeah, Yeah, that sounds right. Yeah, and that card I found to be more useful than I thought it would be, especially if you can get a big shadow down, do it, and then go over and do some stuff. Dranith Stinger is nice to have, you know, in these situations as well to get those last couple damage in, but... When you were playing this deck, were you getting your life total down because of your mana or because of whatever your opponent was doing? How how did you actually get to the point where you can cast a shadow? It's always the mana, and I think that's part of the reason that it makes sense in cycling, too, is that cycling is a three color deck at least you know sometimes it's just guys sometimes it's mardu but the um boy the mar the black cards that have cycling are just really bad yes. so the one that just randomly gets rid of three cards seems pretty bad out of their your opponent's graveyard seems bad in this meta game right now oh you're never then, casting that card that's you only play it to cycle yeah, right some cards are intended just to cycle right know? yeah exactly but it's like boy there's there's no fail case there you're just you're just cycling it so I mean, I thought it was cool that it looks like uh, Yeoman 5 had some good results with this, but I couldn't quite I don't, duplicate it I, man, when I, I, I was I playing I can't imagine. Either. I cannot imagine like, how and why Shadow fits into a deck like this, right? Like, is it is it kind of like a backup cheap threat? Like what yeah. we talked about? Like, like it's once your backup the, fox, basically. Yeah, once the opponent has you like basically dead because your deck's bad? Like, <laughs> like, Because like you're playing you get, a standard deck in a non-rotating format? Yeah, exactly. Um, I mean, more on that later. Uh, but yeah, man, I, I just, I don't, I, I, I would highly doubt that this ends up being the, the home for shadow because I, I would highly doubt that that cycling ends up being a historic power level deck, but again, more on that later. Yeah. All right. So we've talked about a whole lot of different stuff here now, and I think that, you know, we're kind of saving the one that we think or at least I think is the best shell right now for it for last. And so I think that building on the discussion that we had earlier about shadow being more of a mid range card in historic than it sometimes is in modern. um, I think that the best shell for this, you know, aside from the fact that modern shadow decks have access to Luris plus bauble slash seal of fire, other stuff to make those grind plans kind of be the same in every deck, right? That's what's missing here. Realistically is if you don't have Luris and bauble, you can't kind of move your mid game into something where you're going to draw a bunch of other cards. So we don't have ways to turn Luris into card advantage, like pure card draw in the same way that you do in modern here in historic you get to use it to replay threats and that's fine it's good in auras it's good in this 
So I'm not sure that having all these shadow decks have to be Luris decks is the place to start. And that was my impression after looking at and reading some tweets from uh, a list that Michael Rapp shared on Twitter recently. Known shadow scientist, Michael Rapp. What did he say? So uh, I intimated a little bit. He kind of said that he didn't think Luris was very good in, in these in these builds and in historic right now without Bobble. So the list that he had been working on was Mardu Shadow, which I thought was pretty interesting. And so I, I had the most success with this version. Stan, you said you mentioned that you played against it some in Platinum uh-huh. on Ladder. But here's the core of the deck. Mini dive down happening here right now. Mini deck dive. The core of the deck is the threat package is Death Shadow, Scourge of the Sky Claves, and Knight of the Ebon Legion. Okay, it's a one, two one drops and a two drop. It's supplemented by a really key card that you get access to when you go white, which is Adanto Vanguard. Remember this card? Yes. Yeah. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. You can pay. You could basically this like this does that kind of. Uh, phyrexian thing or like whatever that hex card is parasite yeah hex parasite where you can just yeah. pay life at any time yeah so it's worth mentioning really quickly that there was a time period in modern maybe a year and a half ago or two years ago where mardu shadow was a pretty cool version of the deck as well with hex parasite ranger captain of eos tide hollow sculler all these things that kind of helped you move into a real mid-rangey plan with death shadow which is something that some of the other decks didn't do at that point and i think that's similar to what kind of happens here as a result and adanto vanguard is a big part of that because it lets you attack in early to be able to get your opponent's life total down so you can play a scourge of the skyclaves but it also lets you pay for that activated ability that it has to be able to get your shadow kind of set your shadow to whatever size you want it to be although it's in increments of four so you have to be pretty careful with it but those two things together really help the deck have enough two drops and enough threats that play together that I think it's a pretty good package. And then on top of that, you have Bone Crusher Giant, which is another reason that you can't play Luris in the deck, or one of many reasons you can't play Luris in this deck. And so Bone Crusher Giant is great, of course, as a little bit of direct damage and creature kill in this deck that already has a lot of creature kill, but also a nice threat occasionally and then the last thing is that since you can't have luris to do some card draw one of the things that that uh michael pointed out that i thought was the most interesting is the card suite in this deck which is three bowmat couriers on one and two ranger of eos did you know that ranger of eos was legal in historic because i didn't before this the only reason i did is because i was researching what was in the anthologies and I think I think a citizen of the nation mentioned it at some point. So Ranger Vios, in case you don't remember, is a three-two for four. It's from Alara Block. That was a really good standard card, by the way. And it lets you go and search two one mana spells out of your deck and put them into your hand. That sounds like value. Yeah, it's pretty good. Um, <laughs> because what you find is that, you know, this was occasionally in the sideboard of modern death shadow decks and four shadow deck or four color decks. It was there sometimes things like that, especially pre oh, yeah. And so what it lets you do is you get into the mid game, you lose some of your threats and then you play a ranger of Eos and you can go and get two shadows or you can go get a shadow and a Bomat courier. If you want to try to get that train going again, very occasionally you might get a knight of, of, uh, the Ebon Legion 
which is like a fine card. But having all of those good one drops in the deck gives you a chance to kind of get instant card advantage instead of something that's a little bit kind of grindy. It really lets you reload immediately instead of kind of taking the time to do it. And I felt like that was super good. Super effective, and even the body, the three-two body on uh, Ranger Vios came in handy as an attacker quite often when I got to that point of the game. Oh yeah, this this stunk to face down. Like when I face down the Maru Shadow decks, you know, they have enough removal and hand disruption and blockers on their end. Where it, when they were able to play the Ranger Vios and then untap and then play a couple Deshows, just like well, stink. Yeah, like, I, I, I'm not gonna grind through this yeah and especially we were talking earlier about the fact that fundamentally the the shadow decks are all about trading one for ones trading one for ones trading one for ones and then having a big threat that is efficient to either protect or attack with or something like that on on plan so you can kind of maximize your mana advantage over time i think that ranger vios really lets you do that because quite often you're playing this on like turn five you're playing it on turn six and so sometimes you go ranger vios shadow shadow go and you're kind of like i'm just going to swing in with a bunch of stuff especially against a deck that you know you're not going to get a sweeper out of you know like an elves or something like that that can that can really happen um so for me that kind of felt like a more interesting way to turn this into a grindy card advantage resource attrition kind of deck than any of the other solutions that i had seen earlier the last couple of cards that are in the main in michael's deck are final payment which is a white and a black for destroy target creature at instant speed but it has a side effect of you either have to sacrifice a creature when you cast it or take or pay five life and so it's kind of like dismember where sometimes you're like i don't even care what i'm gonna do i'm gonna kill this card of yours i'm gonna pay five life and now i have a eight eight shadow and i'm gonna swing in with one or two of these things and then the last card the last second to last card is uh is ember cleave this is the last card in the main deck oh is that good in historic so it's great in historic i think interestingly it's just plus one plus one though yeah it's funny how much better that that can be in situations where you don't have death shadow out than team or battle rage is in the decks that run team or battle rage so for example like sometimes when you play grixis and you're playing with the with sprite dragon and you're kind of like, cool, I can get Sprite Dragon to a 2-2, two, two, and then now I have Team or Battle Rage, so what am I going to do? Make my Sprite Dragon a 3-3 three, three, and then just hit you for 6? Like, that's not so great. The plus 1, plus 1 thrown down on a Danto Vanguard or on a Knight of the Ebon Legion or on to um, even Ranger of Eos actually is pretty compelling because it turns it into a big attacker a lot more, a lot more quickly. And so it's pretty worth the slot, I think, in here even though a lot of times you're paying four for this. Yeah, that's when I, when I look at this list, I think that this is like, I think one, this is the best shadow deck that I faced down. And the most impressed I was with the shadow deck in terms of being frustrated on the other side. And when I'm frustrated as a player, playing like when my opponent's playing a deck and I'm continue like, man, how do I deal with what the questions they're asking me and the threats they're presenting and the pace at which they are doing so and the efficiency of their removal, then I know that that's something to be a little bit in fear of where it's like they have 
a well-rounded game plan that offers a, offers a number of sort of must-remove or really would like to remove threats. And that's what I think this deck is doing more than I saw from other shadowy style decks, where the, the pace of the attack and the quality of the attackers and then the rebuilding ability through the Ranger of Eos all do a lot of stuff. And then the burst potential with Embercleave. I do, however, think this deck is like 85 to 90% there because of like there's there's mana issues here. Like there's not a lot of pips for um, double, like there's not even a lot of pips for a Danto Vanguard, like right. on curve, hmm. like you're like, you know, going back to like a Frank Carson type thing, like you're like 84% to have a Danto Vanguard on curve, which is, sounds really good. And except for the 15% of times when you don't have it, but yeah. maybe you have scourge there and that's probably potentially fine. Yeah. For what Shane is saying, there's only 10 white sources in the deck. Yeah. And there's only 10 red sources. And then you're having something like uh, Chandra. I mean, Chandra in the side is maybe like, maybe it's too greedy. Like maybe that sort of gets out of there in the end or even Ember Cleave. There's a double red card. I have trouble casting that in gruel sometimes. Right. Do you know what I mean? And if you're trying to cast that with a deck with 10 red pips, two of which are Shatter Skull smashing and might hurt you to bring in, like that's not always great. Fortunately, you want to be hurt when you bring them in. Most of the time. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So it's it's a kind of thing where I think like there's there's a few things to iron out in this deck, but I think it's really good has a really good core, and we're going to see some slight tweaks here and there by players like Rap and people who are going to pick up on this as probably the best Shadow deck in Historic. Totally agree. Most yeah. impressive version of Shadow I saw by a significant margin, and for me, the card that really stood out was Adanto Vanguard, because when they're able to cast it, it's near impossible to remove period and it also is so supportive of the shadow plan because you get to pay life on demand that either sometimes you just can't kill it because they have cards in hand or you have to automatically two for one yourself by waiting for them to like discard something and try to kill it in response to them once they get out of cards which this deck doesn't ever run out of cards which i think is one of the things that i was really impressed by like it's really good at refilling with bowmat uh, as Dave pointed out, it's good at refilling with Ranger Captain of Eos. And even things like Shatter Skull Smashing, it's a two of here. I don't think you always want to play it as the Bolt Land. I think it's just a yeah. great way to um, spend a ton of mana and two for one your opponent to get creatures out of the way. Yeah, and actually the card that's even better for that, I think, in this deck is Agadim's Awakening. That's where I was going, mm-hmm. right? It's like, dang, this is efficient. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's really good, and I definitely won a couple of games either bringing back Adanto Vanguard and Death Shadow, or bringing back Scourge and Death Shadow with a well-timed Agadim's Awakening. It's really good in this deck, I think, and really worth the the slot, especially with the Boltland synergy with making your uh, your guys big. Yeah, I think the, the takeaway for me with this deck and why it works perhaps better than the rest is because it has the most ways to get two for ones and get a lot of value out of individual cards, whether it's the bolt lands, whether it's things that draw your cards or maybe something just like bone crusher giant, which is a removal spell and a body tacked into one. Right. Last thing I would say is the sideboard for this deck is pretty chunky right now. It's three, four ofs and then three one ofs, but there we're, is an important card in the sideboard out. here. Yeah, I'm still figuring it out. But I think that, you know, this deck runs four Graft Diggers Cage, four Gods Willing, and four Rampaging Ferocidon on the side right now. And I think those all tell you a little bit about the types of decks that you're worried about playing this. 
don't know if those are going to be those numbers forever, but I will say God's willing, very impressive to me in this particular deck as a combination of stubborn denial for protection and also team or battle rage in a weird way where if you are playing against a deck that goes really oh, wide, yeah. but is somewhat monocolored, you can play this as a way to get around their interaction and also make your, your threats unblockable. I definitely want a number of games off of that trick. So it's a nice utility card to have in this because it does double action like that. So anyway, that's our mini deep dive on Shadow in Historic. I think that Mardu is the best one that I saw or that I played around with. We'll see where it goes from there. I think that this was not my play over it. Like I said, I made it almost all the way through gold with just playing Shadow decks over the weekend, which is not saying a huge amount, but uh, it made me feel like it's definitely likely that Shadow is legit, if nothing else. Yeah, I'm I'm still on the fence about Shadow, but I do think that people will be will stick to it enough and like I said earlier, we'll kind of learn the ins and outs of Shadow. Like even on some un, like one of the few untapped decks that had enough stats to have some some results was like 47%. Yeah. And yeah, I, they're, but I they're low. I mean, but I think that's I think that that is that's like learning curve type stuff, right? Like I think that I think we will see these type of decks be decent to good um but yeah i think you're gonna be you're gonna be learning as you're doing it yeah all right we got about 20 something minutes to get through some other impressions of historic so let's roll it on the smaller things yeah it turns out when we bought into historic anthology we got 16 other cards no well one of the cards that i mentioned uh, last week was Flame Blade Adept, um, and I thought it would have a home perhaps in Cycling, which is a standard power level deck that has been sort of peeking its head up in Historic, especially I think in Best of One Historic as kind of a, a cheese win type thing. And I've been, since uh, Historic Anthology 4 dropped, I then tested a bunch of Cycling. I was primarily driven by Flame Blade Adept entering the format. I knew Dave was going to grind Shadow, so I wanted to do my part testing Flame Blade Adept. So the draw here, of course, is that Flame Blade gives you another one drop to go along with Flourishing Fox, and it's one that ostensibly can capitalize on the cycling theme that's going on in the rest of the deck, right? So I tested primarily two decks. Um, one was sort of modifying the standard cycling deck, which gets us that cycling engine and the payoffs, but it gets us better mana base, uh, the, ma- the better mana base of Historic and the cycling lands of Historic as well. And then there was a more sort of Historic-oriented list that had Hollow One, which was reprinted in Amonkhet Remastered, and also Cast Out, which is a piece of removal that also can cycle. And that list also ran for each of those cycling lands. As a side note, I ultimately think that was far too many. I think the deck needs to make its early land drops more. I hated having eight come into play tap lands. Don't run eight if you try this deck. It's in my rough. Opinion. Yeah. yeah, it's just too much. Um, so I wanted to think that Flame Blade was something pretty viable, but I'm you know to, to spoil it. Long story short, I'm ultimately not sure cycling has what it takes to be a historic strategy. Uh, so here's some of the issues that I faced with cycling: is that it's it's slow to get online. And the payoff cards are primarily all two mana. 
So you have to untap with these cards for multiple turns for them to be worthwhile. Like this is not a type of deck where it's like, oh, I untap with my two drop and go off type thing. It's like a, I untap with my two drop, maybe get a little bit of value out of them. And like Dave said, I think there's almost no room for main deck interaction besides that one in a red fight card that also cycles for one. So, and that card is not very good unless you're combining it with like a big flourishing fox because right. you're ultimately two for one in yourself. Like by remove and removing one of your engine cards, like let's say like someone has a really scary X2 or X3 on the other side of the board and you're like, well, I got to use this fight card or I'm going to lose this game. And you're two for one in yourself, removing a cycling engine card and a payoff card at the same time. And you're like, that, that is not a good way to win the game. Or you're using like one of your Zenith flares to remove a creature instead of doming the opponent. And that's typically not what you want to be doing, like unless it's like a pretty threat light. Like maybe they just have a few important threats, like maybe a Death Shadow. Um, and that can be decent as well. But like the ultimate goal of this deck is to plank in, get a, get a few bits of damage here and there, maybe get some of like the, the ping effects, and then you get that late game Zenith flare which is that drain gain instant that counts the cycling cards in your graveyard. But then your opponents know that this is the case as well. So like if they're a counterspell deck, they're not going to let you resolve this unless you somehow like get to eight mana. They have like a single drown in the lock left and you're like casting two of them from your hand. Um, otherwise you're trying to, you know, you're going to be hit with wrath as you do that. You're going to face some challenging blockers on this out of the, the battlefield. And it's just kind of hard to get to the win con, um, without Zenith flare. And sometimes you just can't block or attack fast enough to even get to the Zenith flare. Um, or the opponent's playing like some random, like best of one graft, you know, not a graft diggers cage, but maybe just some sort of like graveyard interaction where they get rid of your graveyard or something like that. Um, and cycling relies on keeping those creatures in play. And that's sometimes hard because like you're not presenting a clock fast enough. So like your wrath opponents are getting to their wraths or they're getting to their interaction, blah, 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 blah. Flameblade adept doesn't cycle. So it's like, it's like the worst top deck you can imagine. It's like mm. with, without it, without really it being so worth it early on that like, it's like a must play. Like something like land of war elves is a bad top deck, but it's so good early on that you kind of are priced into playing it. And I'm not sure if flame blade adapt is so good early on. And I'll get to that, that why in a second that you like want to, like, like the top deck nature late game feels worth it, right? Because you can't cycle it away like you can with Flourishing Fox. And like I said last week, it doesn't keep its buffs. So you have to be able to continue to sort of like feed this card, like cycling cards from your hand. So because it doesn't keep its buffs and you want to essentially cycle every turn when this is on the ground at the battlefield, is, yeah. this, is this the type of card that you want to mulligan to or makes you more likely to keep like an iffy hand that like might be a one lander. That's the thing is like this card is like you basically, you really want to see it or flourishing Fox in your opener. But like the real problem is, is like even on one, like one on the draw, this card stinks mm -hmm. one on the play. It's pretty good, but like there's so many, this card is, this deck is based around two drops, much more than one drops. So like you're not untapping and going crazy with flame blade adept. 
Like you're not sort of like getting like that four damage or five damage turn on turn two or something like that. Well, yeah, because you don't have burning inquiry. Yes, exactly. That's the problem. And so like really what you're doing is you're playing a two drop and then maybe getting in there for one and then hoping that on like turn three, you can sort of come alive and maybe force a double block. Like, I mean, like, well, really what you're kind of threatened is maybe like three or four damage at the most. And maybe they're just like, who cares? Like, I don't want to lose a good creature. Like, you get in there, fine. Um, they can just kind of ignore it. Or like maybe just swing black back with something stronger. Um, yeah, I think without cards to enable the discard part of this, because the thing that's interesting here is that if if cycling had at like I mean, a lot of decks would be better if there was access to some kind of mass discard card in um in historic. I mean, we have cathartic reunion. I guess, right? We have cathartic reunion. We do. Yeah. So you could, you could do that. And cycling actually is okay with just discarding some of the cards. I mean, it's basically like cycling when you cast cathartic reunion anyway. So I feel like if you're not doing cards like that and you're just doing the thing that cycling tends to do, where it's just like, I'm just going to cycle two cards this turn. And then this turn, I'm going to cycle three cards. And then this turn, I'm going to do this. Like without that, like extra burst, um, it feels like, it's never going to get there for flame blade adapt, unfortunately, because you just need the mana efficiency to make it a good threat that swings in for four on turn two. And that's what yes. you're really looking for with a card yeah, like and, this, or at least you were back in the day in modern. Yeah. And you can, and what would be good about that in modern is like, you would also be advancing your game plan. Like I'm going to cast like a burning inquiry or something like that. And then like play two hollow ones. Right. And you just can't do that because your setup is just a slower process here. And like one of the positive things is that I do think cycling has a positive shadow matchup because like shadow has a really hard time playing around Zenith flare, uh, Zenith flare. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. So they're just putting themselves in Zenith flare mode all the time. And yeah. So can, and, like and turn you, five. And you often have like the ability to sort of like you have a couple spells that are either gaining a couple enablers um, payoffs rather that are getting you life or creating like chump blockers, which shadow never wants to see and sort of buying yourself time. And then you sort of trade off a few creatures that have cycling. And so they actually power up your Zenith flare and then you just sort of, yeah, you just win. I played against cycling one time and I lost, I think three scourges to a Zenith flare where they, (laughs) it was like, they just like went up to 20 life again. It just, it just, or they went like, it was brutal. They just killed them. Yeah, it doesn't. It's it's it's. I think it's a very hard matchup. If Shadow becomes like the tier zero, then I think Cycling has a place. But I think that it is an uphill battle for the strategy. I don't think it's particularly fun either. So for me at least, so it's that kind of thing where it's like I'm not going to go back to Cycling anytime soon. Um, but yeah, that's just my general thought on Flameblade Adept, and we have some more interesting cards uh, from Stan. Real quick, you didn't play the Hollow One deck. Oh, I did. I played the Hollow One one. Um, Hollow One was very iffy. Like it's 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 a little bit slow to get online, and then like maybe you maybe turn and like I had so many mana issues with uh, coming to play tap lands, where it's like I really needed to have access to three mana on turn three. I could cycle three cards and play like a Hollow One or two for free, but like those instances came up so infrequently. And then even like modern where it's like, okay, well I have some turn three, four, fours who, who cares sometimes it's like those, okay, this untapping it raft type thing. So, I mean, blue white control is popular right now. Yes. So 
Hey, speaking of blue eye control, um, I'm going to just do many, you know, long lightning rounds, so to speak. Three cards slash decks that um, have been popping up since Anthology 4 that I think have been varying degrees of good to interesting. And the first one is Declaration in Stone. You know, as Shane said, blue eye control is popular right now, and I've been seeing my control opponents cast this against me. And in that way, it's kind of popping up exactly what we thought it would, and I actually think it's perfectly fine because this card is pretty good at two for one in you for just two mana. And the clue tokens don't really soften the blow, I have found. And I think that's kind of the thing that people often latch on to is just like, yeah, but then you get to draw cards. I don't think that's necessarily the case if the control player is doing their job right. Because by the time they two for one you, they probably also have counter spells as backup they probably have to ferry to keep drawing through their deck maybe more wraths as well so declaration stone i think for two mana is has been a really strong addition for blue white control or at least the blue white control players i play against and there are even times where i kind of wish that it was winds of abandon or wings of abandon because i'd rather have those lands than clue tokens that i can't really cash in mm-hmm. well you get the benefit right away and with clue exactly. tokens it takes time it takes time to cash them in. So, all right. It's Winds of Abandon, by the way. We went back and forth on this a couple of times last last week. W- winds of Abandon. All right, here's a card I played with. Abomination of Lanawar. So the, this is this is just a big elf, right? Right. This the is biggest elf. Big, scary elf. Indeed. It's the three mana star store. Vigilance, Menace. Its power and toughness is equal to the number of elves you have on the battlefield and in your graveyard. And this was originally a commander card with the uh, Commander Legends product. Interesting. So when I saw this in Anthology 4, I thought it was just a shoe-in for elves' sideboards, at least. And I still think that's true. And I actually think, like, right now, because of how popular Blue-Eye Control is, as well as the growing number of these shadow-based mid-range decks that have a ton of removal, it actually becomes increasingly more uh, important. So in my testing, I started out with four, but because it is a legendary, I went down to three because it, it's not great in multiples. The second one can be good. The third one is not. And I found that it helps solve problems, but not in maybe the way you would expect. So historically, the worst matchup for, for me and elves control in midrange Depending on how you sequence your spells and your creatures, you can occasionally save your ob- abomination to be the absolute last card that you cast after everything else has been answered and you ate a wrath or two. And then after they spent all their answers, you then cast a 7788 Vigilance and Menace. And playing with this card, I realized not a lot of creatures have that line of text where you have both Vigilance and Menace where it's kind of hard to block. So against like maybe a couple shark tokens or a token from the white castle. Like it's just going to eat those up or it's just going to get past them. Um, and then it can also stay back and potentially block you pr- provide a blocker for certain matchups too. Um, I've actually had people just kind of scoop to this card after they run out all of their um, answers against me, even on an empty board, I'll cast like a big abomination and they're at a low enough life total. If they don't draw another removal spell, they're just dead. Stan, did you mention what this card does? I don't think many. I don't think everyone knows what this card does. Yeah, it's a star, star, vigilance, menace, power and toughness equal to how many elves you control in your graveyard and or on the battlefield. What a what a what a wild card to 
to exist in magic. Yeah. The play pattern for me with this card reminded me a little bit like Shaman of the Pack, where you want to cast it at the end of a chain, so to speak. But unlike Shaman of the Pack, it doesn't care if you have a board or not. So I'm not saying it's better, but it kind of slots into that role. And I have seen some of my elf opponents even play it against me in game one. I don't necessarily love that because I don't think it's as good as a lord would be at the three CMC slot, where on game one you get to be very proactive and kind of barf out your hand and see if it works. Mm -hmm. Often it does. But it could potentially be main deckable long term if you are in a situation where you have to anticipate a lot of control or mid-range opponents. Um, So yeah, like I said, the solution it offers, it isn't counterplay against the problematic matchups. It's just kind of this last-ditch effort that will sometimes get the job done by itself. Whereas before this card was cast, you either had to play something like Heroic Intervention to try to save your cards, which doesn't feel good holding up mana for that. Um, or, you know, you would hope to bank on a uh, Coco to just like recharge immediately after a board wipe. And here now you just have this one card solution that can potentially do the thing after a wide board died. Yeah, yeah I mean, it's, it sounds like a useful card, but like it's not necessarily what I'd be looking forward to doing. Like after a wrath is like, here, just, you know, seal away this or something like that. So just have to hope. Right. Well, well, that's kind of my point. Why you want to play it like after you've been, after you've run out of all other options, after they're out of sealaways and wraths, um, hopefully they're tapped out too. Yeah. The the one thing that is nice about this card is that it's three CMC, so it's not. It, you need to cast Blood Chief's Thirst with the kicker to kill it, and you also need to enable Revolt with Fatal Push to kill it. So sometimes it's you know, and it's not super vulnerable to red. Yeah, removal either. So there is a little bit of like a narrow band in there where it's decent against removal cards because of a little bit of awkwardness. But um, yeah, I, I think what it might I think be it's is good just, role player. Exactly. I think it might just be like one of your best threats against mid range and control decks. Yeah, because Warmaster, which is like the new best elf in those decks, like has a hard time sticking around because that oh, is, is a two drop. I think so. <laughs> You don't agree, Dave? No, I do. I was telling, I remember I was like, Stan, you should play this card. You're like, nah. Who plays elves? All right. Yeah. Last card and deck that I want to mention, maybe the biggest surprise to come out of Anthology 4. Historic Ponza. Whoa. Okay. All right. Hear, the, hear this. This was introduced by um, a player out of Italy who streams under the name Il Delmo on Twitch, retweeted by Fireshoes. The deck is on MTG Arena Zone. And on its surface, it's this chonky gruel deck. It's got Bone Crusher Giants. It's got a couple of Spellbreakers, Chandra Torture Defiance, and a couple of Great Henge. But it also has a land destruction angle with 13 main deck cards, including Goblin Ruin Blaster, Smashing Success, which is yes. like a four mana destroy target land or artifact i think it's got not vold some somber mound <laughs> which is one of the uncommon lands from call time that taps for red comes in tap but you can pay like seven or eight mana in gruel colors to destroy a land and make a four four troll oh right yeah very, yeah very convoluted but the newest addition from historic anthology is sawtusk demolisher which is another that that was not in the anthology, right? You oh, made that up. Oh, it was. It it sure was. Originally, it was printed 
as an Ikoria Commander card. And it's a six mana, six, six trample with mutate for four mana. And whenever this creature mutates, destroy target non-creature permanent, its controller creates a three, three green beast creature token. So you're generally using this to destroy lands. You could, if you need to hit a, a planeswalker or an artifact with it too. So I tested this deck a little bit in best of one, just to get a sense of how it works. And I was very pleasantly surprised with how well it can grind. It goes into the long game like crazy and really turned out that just a pile of good cards just eventually went over the top of opponents who you can force into stalling out. That said, the land destruction plan didn't really feel very powerful or proactive to me considering mm. what I'm used to in Ponza because the absolute earliest that you might play a land destruction spell here is turn three. It has birds, of, not birds of paradise. It has the duck, the goose, yeah, Gilded Goose. <laughs> Gilded yeah. Goose, yeah. And and it also has Land War Elves. couple standouts, though, were Kiora, Behemoth Beckoner. And, and this kind of gets me to why this deck grinds really well. It draws a ton of cards. Like, Kiora will draw you a ton of cards. Kiora also lets you ramp a little bit because of its minus. will untap a land or a Land War Elf or whatever. So you can maybe get a little extra resources out of your lands. And then it's got three Elder Gargaroth which just takes over games once it hits the board. So I wouldn't necessarily treat this as like a true Ponza-esque strategy, but rather this like chonky Gruul deck that's slower than Gruul aggro, but a bit bigger. And I think has like this really interesting long game because it leans so hard into Gargaroth and can, you know, eventually take over some tempo or steal some tempo from your opponents because every once in a while it's just going to blow up a land of theirs. And if they're, you know, playing 18 to 20 lands, like taking them off their third or fourth mana can actually like really slow them down while you're ramping out something really big and drawing extra cards in the process. That's hilarious. I had to read this card like five times. I, st I still don't totally understand how mutate works, but that's cool. <laughs> we'll, we'll get there someday. It's so weird. The thing about mutate is you can put it on top or on the bottom of the creature that you're mutating. Right, 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 right. Exactly. It makes a lot of sense, right? It's awesome to hear that one of your favorite decks is maybe having a chance to have some kind of existence in Historic as well. It's weird. And I wonder if like one of the things that I've taken away from all these eccentric cards that are added through anthologies is a growing middle class within Historic. Like I think Tier 2 could be expanding in a good way and might contribute to long-term deck diversity because we have like really weird tools that don't otherwise have a home because they, they don't have a lot of support within standard sets, but can create some kind of plan when you start tapping into all the things you have in disposal in historic, thanks to things like Jumpstart and the standard sets that it does include. Mm -hmm. Makes sense to me. All right. Well, historic anthology four has definitely made some changes to the format. And certainly if you go into the queues right now, you're going to find people trying to play these cards, lots of shadow, but lots of other mm -hmm. things too. And so I think that in at the very least, at least it's accomplished a little bit of fun for people to do some more exploration and we will see where it goes from here. Would you guys agree though, as a parting thought, it doesn't feel like anthology has blown up the format or has introduced like some kind of weird tier zero nonsense that now everyone needs to be prepared for. No, I mean, the only thing I'm keeping an eye on is the inspiring statuary plus paradox engine 
deck that's a little worrisome. It's there's a uh, but we'll talk about that some other time. Let's see if it's just a blip <laughs> on the radar or not. I think these decks that we've talked about, in particular, the card that everybody was really worried about was Death Shadow just taking over. I think Death Shadow is such a surgical implement that it will take time to figure out and it will be good sometimes and it'll be not good other times. So, but yes, I would say it hasn't really blown up the metagame. Yeah, which is fine. Like if we get more, more strategies in historic without blowing it up, that's seems like a win. All right, let's, let's win more games and, and get to mythic. Shall we? We'll try. We got 15, 16 days left. I'll make it's another more- run. Yeah, I mean, I got a, I got a new deck to mess with. Maybe I'll be a Mardu Shadow main for a for a, a hot minute. See what happens. Shane, you're gonna be so frustrated. <laughs> oh, I, I know. It's not proactive enough for you. We'll see. I'm worried. Well, that wraps up this week's show. If you haven't yet, make sure you subscribe to our podcast so you get the latest episodes as soon as they come out. And if you use Apple Podcasts, please leave us a rating and review. If you'd like to submit a question to the podcast, pick our brain on something in modern historic. Heck, even Pioneer. You can tweet us at the Dive Down, all one word, or email the Dive Down at gmail.com. If you'd like to support the show, you can join our Patreon at patreon.com slash the Dive Down. As little as a dollar an episode, that's less than the cost of a coffee addiction, will get you into our super secret Slack channel. Also, shout out to manatraders.com for sponsoring the Dive Down. If you sign up for Manatraders with promo code the Dive Down, all one word, you'll get 15% off your first three months of renting Magic Online cards. And if you play Magic Arena, you can support the Dive Down without spending any money by using our affiliate link to download the free deck tracking software over at untapped.thedivedown.com. As always, special thanks to the bands Nowhere and Spaceblood for letting us use their music. And until next week, get out there and cast a shadow!